Hi, I'm John Ata. Hi. And uh, yeah. introduce yourself, Jamie. We've got no idea who you are. Hello, my name is Jamie DeWolf. <laughs> I'm from Oakland, California. I'm a filmmaker, performer, and near do well. Near do well. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> that was the thing I was going to say. And we met um, many years ago in 2015 in the country of Canada, which back then was a country. It used to exist back then in uh, a place called Toronto, I think it is, or something like that. Um, Toronto, yep. Yeah. I went to Montreal. When I first went to Montreal, I'm on the plane and we arrived and it said, we're coming into Montreal. I went, I'm on the wrong plane. <laughs> oh, Montreal, Montreal. Okay, that's good. So we met then and you did four incredible performances. You know, you don't, don't mind me adulating you, do you? Is that okay? <laughs> No, oh, I'm glad that you liked them. I was a bit intimidated to go on that stage for search. Yeah, in front of ex-Scientologists, uh, people who'd been conned by your great-grandfather. But what I thought, I sat there and I went, this is like seeing Bill Hicks performing a Raymond Chandler script. You know, this is good stuff, you know. Really tight, really wonderful. So let me just um, massage your ego a little with that first. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I'm I'm a little intimidated to do this podcast because I remember after I'd interviewed you for a project and I told my crew after that, I, th I said, I think John is probably one of the smartest people I've ever had to talk to. Well, so you, you're one of the few people on the planet that speaks in complete paragraphs <laughs> about in, in, intense, complex, philosophical issues. And you've been holding court for days in this sort of labyrinth of... Mm of people recounting their experiences that are both traumatic and then also controversial in terms of just the the layers of belief that people yeah. still wrestle with. And it's always been fascinating me, to me to watch because I think that a lot of folks from the outside would assume that there's just some sort of unilateral unity around those who have been wronged by Scientology or see it for the sham and the con that it is. But that entire event was a perfect example a that, that that is not the case. You have people who have still have vestiges of belief in it, who still have taken different things from the cold itself and still hold it and harbor it and and kind of continue with some of those same mentalities. Yeah, so just to the Toronto experience in general, so the Going Clear Summit mm. and Conference was... Getting clear, getting clear. Getting clear. <laughs> Meaning getting clear of Scientology, you know. Yeah, going no, clear, right, we, we'd right. already done that. We'd already mm -hmm. gone clear long before. <laughs> it was an incredible event. I mean, do you want to tell them a little how it came together? Yeah, um, Professor James Beverly, who's a professor of uh, Christian thought and ethics, uh, mm -hmm. came to me and conned me into doing this, this thing with, I think there were 27 participants and I'd come back, I, I left studying the history of Scientology and your ancient relative um, back in 96. And mm -hmm. uh, in 2013, I was talking to some people and I realized that people don't actually recover from Scientology, or many mm -hmm. people don't, that, that they just change the words, you know, so they, they don't have the overt motivator sequence anymore, they have karma. <laughs> But they haven't mm -hmm. looked at the Akashic records and the Lords of Karma and all the nonsense that is believed in Hinduism about that or Buddhism. They just mm -hmm. carry on. And it 
compresses them. It sort of stops them from entering the world. So I came back for a couple of years, 2013, 2015. And this was, you know, meant to be this one song, the culmination of my work on Scientology. And so the thought was, you know, to really do everything we could. So we reached out to you. And uh, I mean, some great people, Angela Harris, a toxicologist, talking about um, the purification rundown and whether it's a good idea to take enormous quantities of vitamins and put yourself in a sauna for four hours a day. And she was so matter of fact. You had lawyers talking about the suits against Scientology's Narconon, its uh, pretend drug rehabilitation program. Um, we had somebody who had worked with Hubbard continuously. We were able to start, I think, 1963 with Hannah Whitfield and work on through to the amazing uh, Jesse Prince, who um, was with him until, well, pretty much the end, uh, or working directly for him. And so we got lots of direct stories um, and, and just a, an, an overview. And, and I felt there was a point where Jerry Armstrong said that Michael... Flynn had said something about them finishing off um, something or other to do with Scientology and, and that I felt that we'd actually killed the whole thing during those five days. And there was a, an incredible exuberance, I felt, you know, that um, and I've never done anything like that before. It's the first time I've emceed. Um, I've had to talk before, but I've, I've generally, you know, had a lectern with something in front of me to read from. So it was an incredibly liberating feeling to just have to make things up and talk along with PowerPoints. Um, and, it, you know, it was a great atmosphere. And I, you know, had the incredible pleasure of, of meeting your uncle as well, um, who's one of my favourite people. I think he's great. Um, so, yeah, that, that was what we did. It's all available on Vimeo. About 12 people have actually rented copies of it since we put it up. It's like, oh, no. And I it, think there's got to there's got to be a way to bring it around or to maybe make it into more digestible pieces. Hmm. Um, there there has to be a way. I mean, I thought it was a profound. It was just a profound coming together of so many pivotal people, and hmm. to some degree, when I was growing up, in the L. Ron Hubbard Jr. side of the family, and how that was on the run and, and uh, just how, how Scientology was not discussed for so many years and then mm -hmm. having to sort of poke the sleeping dragon. But when I was finally opening my eyes to a lot of it and, and making my own studies and inroads into learning it, I mean, a lot of these names and characters like yours and Hannah Whitfield mm -hmm. and Jerry Armstrong were in particular almost like sort of mythic knights to me. <laughs> Um, I remember when I read Barefaced Messiah, and I was always blown away by the opening chapter, which describes how fantastical the scenario seems of, of, of an acolyte trying to destroy as much evidence as they can in a secret safe house before the government surveillance finally comes to its its end and then they raid the location and then find this evidence, but he finds these secret boxes in this attic. And, you know, I mean, and I had always just been completely fascinated by that idea and the price that all of you have paid mm -hmm. to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that we're in 2021, even past the pandemic, and I feel even more that Scientology isn't going anywhere. 
which is is just the most dispiriting idea in the world because there's it's like what else do you need to do you know i mean you had every level of people come in come out every ot level come in come out the number two guy the number three guy the tv shows tv series books exposés and I think it's a real testament to how entrenched they are yeah. with their financial wheelings and dealings in the real estate. And just what a devastating blow it was when they finally toppled the IRS and how that just just really allowed them to fortify themselves in a way that's been really difficult to shake. Yeah, it is. It is astonishing. Right from the start when I, I left, which is now 37 years ago, 1983. Mm -hmm. I didn't think it was going to become extinct. I thought mm. that the best we'd be able to do was to to pull its teeth and cut its claws. And mm. the model for me was always theosophy, which, you know, when Jiddu Krishnamurti had been brought up to be the Messiah, he's not mm. the Messiah, he's a very naughty boy. He, mm. When he acceded to power, he gave the money away. And my mm. hope was that, you know, one day Rohan... Hubbard would, um, Horwich Hubbard would, would give the money away because, of course, in reality, the last genuine will left mm. all the money to her. But that mm. will was destroyed. <clears throat> and um, we now wait, it would appear, and I, I hate to say this publicly and he'll probably sue me, but it would now appear that David Miscavige is, in fact, impotent. And um, he may have eaten his own wife at some point, but that's only an allegation. Um, <clears throat> and so there isn't a successor and mm -hmm. as you know because of his the amount of steroids that were pumped into him as a child it mm -hmm. seems unlikely that he will live to a ripe old age um mm -hmm. and i don't wish him any harm if he wants to come around and have a cup of tea and tell me about it i will listen patiently uh, as long as he doesn't <laughs> shout at me i don't like that and i'm not going to lick the carpet for him either you know but <laughs> <laughs> he wants to come and talk to me. That's fine. But who will succeed? Will it be one of those people who've been locked in the hole, the double trailer, all these years? Mm -hmm. Will they creep out into the life like the Morlocks out of the time machine or something? Um, and will that person ethically go, oh, dear, we've got to give all the money back? You know, because it, it is a preposterous scam from beginning mm -hmm. to end. I, and the thing I want to say is that I, and this struck me some time ago, Scientology and Ron Hubbard is going to be a genre. It's not just going to be a, a set of stories. This is the most astonishing story of the 20th century. Nothing, mm. you know, even the life of, of Mao Zedong or Stalin, which are pretty astonishing, come close mm. to what this spotty fat kid managed to do, you know. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah, I get I get asked quite a bit what what I think the future of Scientology is going to be, and without any sort of inside knowledge or um, or whatnot, I always ask just like I always ask the main question of why I think David Miscavige was able able to rise to power and mm -hmm. why he's been able to keep it is I just ask in a simple way is like well who has all of the phone numbers of the lawyers you know who has all of the accounts. That's who has the power. It was like David Miscavige has a heart attack, drops, falls. Who's the first person 
that is going to hit the scene and know mm-hmm. where all that money is and where the money is going to go. You know, is yep. it Tom Cruise's team? Do they have somebody already in place? That wouldn't surprise me just because of his already his high level of mm. of fame and money and celebrity. That doesn't mean that he's going to necessarily like take it over and be the vanguard. But it wouldn't surprise me if he was someone to kind of jump in and try to steer the ship to the next level. But it's its own self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, the same way that Elrond didn't really leave much in the way of succession because of his own egotism and paranoia and making sure that nobody could add and amend to any of his great untouchable works. And that's something I point out also is that it it really was a self-serving belief system because when any believer gets to a point of my word is law and nothing can be touched, nothing can be modified, then you're not you're not making a system that is meant to last. You know, that that's an absurd notion. It's like if someone wrote a constitution for a country and says, if you change one word of this in the next 200 years, then all of this is invalid and you just rip it up and the country no longer exists. You know, you have to be able to have modification and and to be able to to create flexibility for whatever is going to be coming, especially when you're trying to sell something that is going to be the manuscript on to save man and womankind for the next millennia or however many billions, millions of years they want to add on in the fantasy of it. And I think the reality of it is, is that Miscavige, by being a courier and a conduit to the sort of outside world, was past the curtain where you see the wizard, you know, behind the mm. curtain. But not only that, you see the levers that they're pulling in terms of who's contacting the private investigators, who's contacting the lawyers, who's paying the lawyers for all these lawsuits, who's paying the private investigators, where's that money coming from, how do you hide that money so that people can't find it. Like, once you're on the other side of it, then you're able to actually see all the little buttons, pulleys, and levers that they have that is the true machine of Scientology. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the actual machine of, of a church, of the theology of it, has just been running out and pumping out the same product since, you know, the 70s. I mean, they did some repackaging in the 80s, right? And and they buffed up all the books and came out with some new art and did some proofreading and changed some semicolons and so forth. But mm-hmm. the the true mechanism of, of the machine that keeps it running is, is basically this attack dog and harboring and hiding the money. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I think that that's, it's the same as, as the FBI, when they go after any sort of criminal organization, is you just follow the money and you have the true story of it right away. And that's something that I say constantly to folks with whatever sort of investigation they're looking into, or just in general with social systems and governments and conspiracies, and, and like just ignore all of the press releases and what they say. If you just follow the money, who's getting paid? If all the mm-hmm. money's going to one person, you can figure out that entire system pretty quickly and efficiently all the rest is a bunch of bullshit and that's the same with with capitalism communism any kind of political system and does not matter what they're selling you you just track that and it becomes quite simple you know and and i think one thing that i find to be absolutely reprehensible with meeting so many people who have left the sea org is how they still pay people just absolute medieval slave wages mm. with this constant lie of, of like, you know, you need to give yourself to 
Scientology and and this is for like the greater good and the sacrifice. Mm -hmm. But I mean, they have enough money that they could probably pay everybody in the Sea Org like 75 grand a head each yeah. every year to just be devout Scientologists. And they it would not be any rain off their shoulder. They'd be fine. You know what I mean? They would be, they could sell a, a building or two and just pay everybody and they would probably have a lot less people who are miserable and pushed to a breaking point and have to leave and and that is is a testament also to just the kind of endless carnivorous appetite that's sort of built in mm. to the mechanisms at the end of it i mean when you're you know you're david miscavige at this point like why not just you could just go you know i mean they at this point i think we are looking at sort of retirement in action. You know, mm -hmm. he hasn't spoken on camera in years. He's been hit with about every controversy possible. But, you know, you wonder at a certain point, why don't they just call it quits? And I think that if and when that happens, he has a heart attack, he falls, he dies, whatnot, that, that power struggle, that power vacuum is going to be very similar to when L. Ron Hubbard was on his way out. And people will see an opportunity. And I think that that was something that was very relevatory in talking to, to Jerry and um, mm -hmm. um, the Jesse Prince in particular, <laughs> who I love talking to Jesse. Yeah, he's is, brilliant. Oh, he's awesome. Yeah. He's absolutely fantastic. And I, I remember when he said that he's like, so I'd worked, he had worked his way up to this, you know, to this very high level in Scientology, all this degree. And then he finally gets sent to go kind of work on the base and, it's like he was crossing over the curtain. And I remember how he said it. He's like, yeah, so I finally get all these these dossiers and find out that there's all of these people attacking us and suing us. I find out that there's an L. Ron Hubbard Jr. that I'd never heard of before, and he's suing us. You know, And that, to me, is just a good example of, of what it's like from the perspective on the other side. You're in a war zone mentality where everything is, is for the greater good, and anything can be justified because you're doing it for this larger cause. And it's all about your opposition and the enemies. And what are you doing against this chess game? And what's your next move? And what's your next attack? And your main levers of power that they continue to use is money. Mm -hmm. and But the money is primarily not just, just sitting there. The money is is primarily only really used to prop up the concept of success to churn out these commercials and TV channels and everything else to just convince the people inside that the propaganda is successful and that they're expanding and they're growing. And then the other part is just the same two lovers that they have become absolute Machiavellian geniuses at and in which is pulling private investigators and mm. and lawsuits. And mm. if it wasn't for those two, they would have collapsed and imploded a long time ago and i mean it's just staggering it's staggering how much they've gotten away with and <laughs> how much they continue to get away yeah. with and and that has always been profoundly dispiriting i mean when people ask i i think i've had i'm sure that you could identify with this and you've been doing it a lot longer as i've had a, just a real genuine push and pull a real tug of war on speaking out against them and kind of moving to the front lines and then 
getting in the trench warfare of it and then they're coming after you and you're face to face and you see the ugliness and the, mm-hmm. the trauma and the awful and the and then the, sometimes I also need to like disengage mm-hmm. not because I don't think that the battle is worth it but because also it's just this toxic hurricane that mm-hmm. sucks you in in the same way that Elron and just narcissists of the world are are it's like when you're dating an abusive narcissist mm-hmm. psychopath is that everything is about them regardless mm-hmm. regardless of you're in a fight you're in a war you're in a, but i mean it's it's always about them and the the true form of power is when you are able to completely detach yourself from it and you say this is your narrative this is your board game and i don't want to play it you know and i want to do something different with my days on this planet versus getting sucked into this vortex and that's something i think i've wrestled with for the past 20 plus years Um, and i I think a lot of critics of scientology um probably inevitably all wrestle with it i mean it's it's a really ugly it's an ugly battle for truth it's often not rewarding um, <laughs> in the way that people think. Um, you, you know, I I would have people because I'm a, been a performer for just as long, twenty mm-hmm. plus years, and I often for years didn't say anything about Scientology. I said it in, in 2000 was my first performances about it, and they came mm-hmm. after me immediately. And I had such a chip on my shoulder and I was young, I was scrappy and, and I didn't care um, at that point. But also I just had a daughter that was born mm-hmm. and um, I saw the true kind of enormity of what Scientology was doing. And, and at that time, it seemed like they were winning. You know, like I didn't walk away from it being like, this is a holy battle to be fought. I instead saw that this was this indomitable hideous monster that American society had created and fed and had fostered and they were winning. You know what I mean? Like when I came out, like Leah Ramini and Mike Rinder, like they were still inside and still going on newscasts and, and championing the cause. Mm -hmm. And they were just suing everybody and crushing people. And the truth was, was there, but I mean, it just was hard to get anything to, to land or to have traction because of the fear. And they still have that fear like all these years later. I mean, in 2020, the amount of projects that um, have been shot down or or canceled or oh, yeah. or left on the table um, is unbelievable. I mean, you know, there's so many things I can't even talk about publicly, but it's just unbelievable that they still have that kind of destructive might all these years later, when the John Atacs of the world have written books that just point by point just absolutely dismantled it. Um, but anyways, I, I'm just kind of digressing here. I mean, I mean, to go back to the conference, um, the conference, I just was felt very lucky to be there. I mean, I, I felt that I was, was a real student and was able to watch and, and take notes. And there's the healing community and the camaraderie of having all of these folks come from their different experiences Mm. and different traumatic experiences and able to share and even eat lunch together and have drinks. Some of them was really revelatory of that. Like they had not seen each other since they had been in Scientology. Mm. So to see each other on the outside was 
pretty amazing. And but I think that your your philosophical deconstruction of Elrond's beliefs in magic mm-hmm. and the occultic roots of it, mm-hmm. I thought was absolutely one of the most important important lectures that I had ever seen. And I think that Thank it you. gets lost. Um, and I've I've talked a lot about it. I've, I've mentioned your your lecture in particular many 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 times okay. um, to folks, and it, it's something I've been wanting to talk to you at, at great length um, at some point in the future when there's more cameras on us and we can really like <laughs> really really dig into it because I think that the way that you the way that you deconstructed it was so integral to. So not only the dangers of it, but I mean the the everything that's that's transparent, right in the open, and is still there. That mm-hmm. is still hidden in its symbology, and also it just makes more sense. I mean, I, I think the issue that I always had was that the magic, the black magic period of Elron Hubbard's um, youthful foray is so pivotal mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. Um, not only because it was like two years, two, three years, like right before he wrote Dianetics, yeah. he was still with the woman that he took from that guy. I yep. mean, she's with him when he's Sorry, writing yeah. and banging this thing out. And it was also sort of at his youthful peak. You know I mean? He was about to make this jump. How old was he when that happened? How old was he when he wrote Dianetics again? He was uh, just coming up 40. Just 40. Um, yeah, so sorry, he was, 39. He was, 39. Yeah, so I think that that gets forgotten in the biography is there's this sense that that they're they're almost in a way are buying into Elrond's own myth whether they even know it or not yeah. because there's this there's this sense that like he really got going or he really got started when he wrote Dianetics. Mm-hmm. And I think they're missing that Dianetics at that point may may have to him, I could only guess, felt like a culmination, you know, like his great work, his his magnum opus that he was contributing. And I think clearly from his actions after that, he was a bit shocked that it was as, as successful as it was because he didn't seem to have much of a plan for when it would land mm-hmm. and went bankrupt pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that, 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 that uh, the Aleister Crowley ideolation and the... The belief system that was interwoven and ingrained in him that I think that you succinctly and adroitly so explains so well is so crucial and key to understanding why any of it works, mm-hmm. what he was actually going for, and why so some of this carries over today. And mm-hmm. I've I've just always been haunted by that. And I think it's because that when you say black magic and, and words like that, people just roll their eyes. They go to sleep. You know what I mean? They, and I, I avoided it for years. I was mm-hmm. like, you know, all right, black mag, black sex magic. People are like, whatever. You know, what I mean, it's like you might as well say cocaine and hookers or something. I'm referring to a rock star. Like, they just sort of push it away. But I always try to point out it's it's not it's not about the waving of a wand and and the writing and you know in in various fluids in the night. It's about what they believed. And, Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, if you so, if you look at that in in terms of the the Hitler crew, and mm-hmm. of course your your granddad Nibs, 
believed, sincerely believed that the magic was given to your great-grandfather by the person who gave it to Hitler. Well, who knows about that? But when you, I got very interested in, you know, Hitler having this, this magic stuff going on. And I talked to historians, this is way back, who were saying, oh, no, you, you don't want to be interested in that. And you're going, no, you see, the thing is, what did he believe? And you then find that Rudolf Hess, the deputy leader of the Nazi party, party was, was a, a member of the Tool group. And you find that the founder of the SS in the Gestapo, um, Heinrich Himmler, you know, and you get this split where you get these crazy books like, um, you know, The Spear of Leviathan, where somebody's looked into the Akashic records. And, and then you get actual, like, Hitler in the Age of Horus. And it doesn't matter that what they believed in is crazy. It matters that mm -hmm. it determined everything they did. And Scientology, and it is that complex idea to get over to people, Scientology is not the practice of sex magic. Scientology mm -hmm. is a magical operation. It's a mm -hmm. way of making slaves who will therefore serve the one single purpose of Elrond Hubbard, which he expressed in his 1938 letter to his first wife, Polly, the, the famous skipper letter, where he says he doesn't believe in immortality except for the painted canvas, the barred note, hard granite, this kind of thing. He doesn't believe in it, but he wants to smash his name into history. And when you get to the end of the story, he leaves $648 million, $500 million of that, half a billion dollars, goes to the Church of Spiritual Technology. And its purpose is to keep Ron famous. Mm -hmm. And you're going, that's the whole thing. I mean, at the end of Blue Sky, I talked about the way that the Chinese and the Romans both have this thing that if people repeat your name, you continue to exist. And I think that's all he had. I think he was an incredible cynic. Um, who really just wanted to be super famous, which, which is, you know, like celebrity for the sake of celebrity. Mm. And, you know, talking about the money and the incredible amount of money that, that was accumulated along the way and that keeps it going, all these billionaires. I mean, um, David Gentile has just been um, arrested for a, a Ponzi scheme that is meant to be worth $1,800 million dollars. It included laundering of Russian mafia monies, and he's right there in Clearwater, and you've got this money, you know, every Thursday at two o'clock. It's like, uh, David, could you put another 10 million in? Because <laughs> our stats are down. And the whole thing is just floating on these billionaires, and in this case, possibly crooks, who are mm -hmm. pushing it along. And there's no longer any substance. It's like, you know, the work of Damien Hurst or something where it's the selling that matters. It's not the fact that, you know, you've got a, a painting that was, you know, somebody put a disc on a potter's wheel and dropped paint on it, you know, and sold it to you for 100 million. It's, it's the idea that's being sold. And with Scientology, David Miscavige has no idea what the idea is. Um, mm. In 1952, there's a lecture in the Philadelphia doctorate course. You know, this great idea. You can sit down for six weeks and listen to me and you'll have a doctorate. It's the, you know, mm -hmm. it's the easiest way to get a doctorate in the world. Just listen to me talking about whatever's coming off the top of my head. And your great-grandfather said, OK, life's a game and there are pieces and the pieces must never know the rules. And you're going, there's mm -hmm. a confession coming on here. The player must keep the rules away from the pieces. Oh, and by the way, the game maker doesn't have to follow the rules. 
and you go, mm-hmm. there's Scientology, completely explained. David Miscavige is the player. Mm-hmm. He knows what the rules are as they relate to the pieces. The rules as they relate to the pieces are keep them in ignorance and take mm-hmm. their money, take their labour, have power over them, humiliate and abuse them, even more mm-hmm. so than, than Elrond did. But he still hasn't twigged the reality, which is, hey, you've got the money, leave. It's over. Right. It's all done. Right. Enjoy yourself for right. the last few years you have left. But I think he enjoys himself by humiliating people. He's a sadist, you know. So he's got everything he wants in the world, you know. Blue Mountain Coffee, um, his inhaler in one hand for his asthma, just like Elrond, and a camel cigarette in the other hand, just like, well, mm-hmm. it's a cool or a pacoon in Ron's hand. This. These people who have nothing, they are nothing, they have no enjoyment or pleasure in life, save the power they have over others. Mm-hmm. I think that the the Scarlet Woman and that and that whole process mm-hmm. and The Destroyer without, of Mankind. Yeah, so w- without getting too much into the nitty-gritties of it, because I know that we could probably say some things that would make people's eyes uh their eyelashes curl um you know there's some really oh, why gritty, not though gritty, why not you know what i mean let's gritty, see some gritty, grisly stuff. but i i think it's about the psychology of it is that if you if you look at the process of what they were trying to do early on mm-hmm. was was the sex magic and the the whatever the methodology was of it mm-hmm. is that the entire concept was to use other people women who are lesser than you because they're misogynistic in general kind of philosophy as conduits for larger powers to then fuse through you mm-hmm. so that you could gain more power and become and have the power of a god. Yeah. And I think all of Scientology after that, you just see it manifesting over and over because on one side, you take away all of this, this whole rule book of arbitrary fill in the blank nonsense that I still hear about from people who've left the church and and it always makes me flinch because I understand that you want to hang on to these levels that you've achieved, the work that you put in and and what you had to suffer to get and attain those levels. But unfortunately, that they're all just devices. They're sort of mm. fill in the blanks. You could have named them this, could have named them that. Mm. But if you look at their ultimate goal, the ultimate goal is all of these courses on your bridge to total freedom is to dismantle all of your opposition that you have psychologically, get to a point where the only word that you will trust is those written and said by L. Ron Hubbard. He's the source. He is the greatest, greatest uh, giver of knowledge that's ever walked this planet. And that he's not God. He's selling you the idea that you're a God by giving all your money, your life, and subjugating yourself to the belief systems of L. Ron Hubbard. I mean, it's it's very, it's in, it's really brilliant on its own way. I'm sure that there's sometimes that that uh, Jack Parsons, if he would have lived, would have been stunned that <laughs> it was so transparent and worked. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be a reunion in the afterlife. I would love to see when Jack mm-hmm. Parsons and Elrond meet up again and Jack's like, so what happened? You took my money, you took my girl, you bounced, and then then I blew myself up. What happened after that? And Elrond's like, oh, you know, the, the 30 years after that, he what I so did, well. 
Yeah. Yeah. What I did with that little rule book, and I mean, it's it's the frustrating thing is is the cult handbook. I think is successful in nearly anywhere that you use it. Um, that there's a couple components and basics of it that are always successful and mm. are consistent. And I mean, I've tried and used several of those as tactics when hosting shows and performing mm. and, and just doing fun elements of just trying things out kind of psychology wise mm. for fun. I mean, in audiences, and a lot of times they're very transparent and I've done shows like that. I did a whole, uh, we did a whole, a whole like game show that was using a lot of cult type tricks live on an audience, and it was just it's just hilarious how these things are just so obvious and transparent, and they work. And a lot of them is because it they're pe- people neglect to point out that they're enjoyable oftentimes to to be worked upon you. I mean, like so. I mean, one of them is is secret levels, right? Secret knowledge mm-hmm. that is 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 a very successful tactic mm. that Elrond saw from Aleister Crowley. You laid this out in probably the most systemic, um, the the most precise manner where you're literally breaking it down. And you had even a visual and a graph where it's like you had all of the symbols transforming into Scientology symbols, and then like the bridge, and then the mm. you know the OTO and and all of that. And and I just thought that that was so significant. And gets lost, I think, again, because people get, they see, they see the sort of song and dance. They see the magic trick and they're not focused on the fact that he was just a magician who had learned from other magicians on misdirection. And though his misdirection was different, he's still using misdirection. Absolutely. And, you know, a, a couple of the tactics of, of secret knowledge and levels in particular, mm-hmm. so that there's this echelon, Status. so that you all, yeah, so you yeah. always feel like you're moving forward mm-hmm. and you don't want to go backwards, which you mm-hmm. have to literally pay for in mm-hmm. Scientology. So you definitely don't want to go backwards. <laughs> if you ever feel lost or confused or that this isn't going anywhere, that's because you, you just need to get to the next level where mm-hmm. it will all become more clear, right? And then you also feel that you are 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 in a winnowing elite group that only few have ever been able to see or tread and just that kind of stuff is intoxicating you know mm-hmm. um i've had this idea I'll, I'll say it on this show and nobody can steal it from me but yeah, i've been wanting we'll to do it for i've been wanting to do it for a cult show in particular where i wanted to have a box on stage that um is locked and I say, you know, inside this box is I'm only going to show it to one member of this audience, <laughs> only one, you know, and the question is, are you going to be that person who's going to see lucky. what's in this box, right? And I have certain questions and contests and do a lot of performances in the show and, but, and one person will be able to get a chance to see what's in that box, right? And, but what's in the box? It really doesn't matter. I just know that, that, that I know if I was an audience member, I'm already intrigued. I'm kind of tortured. I want to know what's in that box. Like, mm-hmm. what is in it? Is it empty? Is there something in it? And then if that one person 
gets in the box. What am I going to, I'm going to ask them if I can, what was in the box? You know what I mean? Like, come on, tell me what was in the box. It's just a natural, there's certain aspects of the cult mechanics that are, are attractive and seductive for a reason. You know, we, we enjoy them. We enjoy also the sense of elite community. And people mm -hmm. talk a lot about, sure. about cults and how people get, um, you know, that they look for broken and empty people and, and, and this sort of stuff. Who'll and be useless. I <laughs> yeah. And won't I, have I don't, any money. Yeah. Great. <laughs> right. I don't, I don't really, I've never really bought that. I mean, Scientology would often specifically look for people who are successful or had mm -hmm. money or whatnot. And Big time. I think also it, it, it's neglecting that it's, it's, they're not just looking for the lost folks to be, to, to be shepherded, you know, in, mm -hmm. in, into their new flock. It's that also they're selling you this sense of elitism, which mm -hmm. is kind of sexy to a lot of people. You know, they're like, it's a real strong distinction. There's us and then there's them. You don't want to be like them, do you? And that's fill in the blank. And then you also start to amplify everything that's awful about them mm -hmm. who are trying to take away what we have and what mm -hmm. we're trying to do. So what's the next logical conclusion? They must be destroyed at all costs, at, at all hours, <laughs> you know, whatever it takes, they must be destroyed. Yeah, and I mean, there, there's enormous history of this. The thing in Scientology is you go earlier similar. And mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that's necessarily what inspired me, but I sort of went, well, where, where does this stuff come from? That this idea of climbing these levels and becoming a member of the elect. And I found this word, electoi. Oh. So the elect is the term that was used by Gnostics 2,000 mm -hmm. years ago to say, us, we're the mm -hmm. electoi. So mm -hmm. you push back further, that's got us 2,000 years back, and you go, well, these are the mystery cults. They give us the word mystery from the word mysties. The mysties are the people who actually practice this stuff, and you wind back the clock to 1800 BC, and you get the Eleusinian mysteries in Greece. And what's mm -hmm. happening, as far as I can make out, and there's all sorts of speculation around this, is you take people through these stages, and it happens in the Freemasons, the Rosicrucians, all sorts of Gnostic, so-called, and neo-Gnostic societies. You take somebody through all of these things where they make, you know, they dress up in silly clothes, they learn silly handshakes, and they become part of the elect, and they go through this level after this level after this level, becoming higher and higher in their wisdom and knowledge. And the end point, as far as I understand it, is that you lead them blindfolded, having threatened to take their life if they tell any of the secrets, you lead them blindfolded underground into some sulfurous smelling place, and you put them in a coffin. This is the box on your stage. You put them in a coffin, and you close the lid. <laughs> and you wait until the screaming subsides, and then you let them out, and their realization is that they can conquer death, that they are a spirit separate from the body. Because, of course, if you put anybody in a dark space for 10 minutes, things start to move. The brain starts to fill in. Things start to happen. So you get them to this point. They're doing this in Korean, South Korean corporations during their lunch break now. They shove you in a coffin for 10 minutes, and people have incredible revelations. You get somebody to have this realization. What gets scary about this, and I hope there are no Christians watching, is that this is the concept of resurrection that comes into the Jewish religion through the mystery cults that are practiced by the followers of Alexander the Great. 
in the third century BC. And Judaism transforms and it suddenly starts believing that you don't just wander in the abyss under the earth as a shadow or shade after you die, you can mm -hmm. resurrect. Mm -hmm. And it just gets built and built and built until you know, we have a concept that comes through Gnosticism and into Christianity and along we go. And in Scientology, you've just got this other level of, of Gnosticism where, and, and I, you know, I, was, I did OT3 and I'd been involved for seven years and it, it seemed to actually, as I look back on it, it made less and less sense. But you go through <laughs> these increments of dissonance where first off, it's a psychological thing where you're dealing with trauma. It's like, well, that sounds sensible, you know, that right. sounds all right. You don't know anything about body thetans until you're seven years in, or I was seven years in. I did OT3, it took three days. I sat and looked at the pack and went, oh God, what am I doing? And this guy walked into the course room and he said, um, it's just like Colin Wilson's mind parasites. It's like, how did he know that I'd read Colin Wilson's mind parasites, you know, and he didn't, you know, it was just one of those really unfortunate synchronicities that made me go, okay, I'll try this. Did it for three days, thought, oh, that's okay, no more body thetans, bye-bye Zeno. And about three days later, I go and I say, didn't do anything for me. And I expected the retread, you know, they have to, you pay half again mm. and have to do it again, all of that stuff. And the guy who was the senior case supervisor, United Kingdom, just a couple of months before, so he's the most highly trained Scientologist in the UK, he looks at me and he says, a lot of people find that. And so you need OT4. You need to, mm -hmm. you know, get rid of your freeloading, drugged up body thetans by, you know, don't just tell them to go away. You've got to actually order. So I do OT4, I borrow money and do that. A few days later, I come in and go, you know, really, I don't have any of these special abilities and powers. And people are asking you, people are going, oh, what's it like being an OT now? And you're going, I can't tell you. I mustn't <laughs> tell you, you know, it's right. bullshit. <laughs> You need OT5, I do OT5, same kind of problem. While I'm on OT5, I've told this story a few times, there's a woman called Stephanie Ryburn, and she was the head of the Birmingham Mission, I love that word of Scientology, the Mission of Scientology. And when I rolled up in December 1974, she wasn't there, she was in America with her husband, trying to work out how the heck they were making so much money in the American missions and she wasn't making any. And when she came back a few months later, I was there, you know, long hair and all of this stuff, and she just gave me that look, and you know that these OTs, they're reading your mind. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you start having the most disgusting thoughts imaginable and going, oh, I don't want to think about that. They're reading your mind. And she wouldn't smile at me, and she never used my name, and she addressed me, and seven years went by. And I'm now doing OT5. You know, I'm now one of the electoi. And I'm, I've come out of the, the waiting room. I still smoke cigarettes then. I'm smoking a cigarette. And she comes out and she's beaming at me. I've never seen her smile before. And she says, John, she calls me by name. And she says, isn't it fantastic that Ron's come up with something that cleans up the mess that OT3 makes? And she <laughs> had been supervised on OT3 by Hubbard on the ship. She was a class wow. eight auditor. And things started to move around at that point. You're kind of going... So it screws you up and then it unscrews you up. But right. the progress you're making, the uh, reading testimony by Brown McKee, who finds himself uh, after, I think, 24 years in Scientology, his wife gets cancer. 
and they go to Florida and they're told, oh, we can't, you know, it's a medical thing now. Here's an address in Mexico, you know, the Hoxie Clinic or somewhere. Go there. And they go into the waiting room and the waiting room is full of Scientology OTs with cancer. And, you know, wow. I for a while thought, well, you know, maybe it's the auditing, maybe the body thetans are causing the cancer. I thought that for a week or so. And then I went, no, they're just not going to the doctor because they believe they have this tone 40 intention with which they can fight the cancer off. And, you know, so this is what we see. We see this, you know, you're sold the notion of absolute narcissism. You know, mm-hmm. as, as Nibs said, uh, Ron was making gods. So what does that make him? He's a god maker, right. you know? And, right. and as you say, it's the Wizard of Oz and there's a little guy with a megaphone behind a curtain. That, that's all you've actually got. And a lot of people mm-hmm. who, it's just like when you, you talk to somebody who fought in Vietnam or Iraq and they say there must have been a purpose. My, mm-hmm. my comrades died there. there. There must have been a reason why we were there. And with ex, the ex-Scientologists saying there must have been a reason why we handed over all of this money. <laughs> and the reason was mm-hmm. that it was a very f- interesting fantasy tale. Mm-hmm. And because we would like to be gods, we would like to have superhuman powers. And what it actually induces is psychiatric conditions, depersonalization or exteriorization, as it's called, and derealization where you no longer perceive the world around you properly. What do you make of it when in his end days that he was still doing auditing, talking about Elrond? Like, what do you make of his his entire arc? I mean, we can... We can speculate to a certain degree in terms of his motivations, but I think they, mm. they're, they seem a lot more transparent right before he write, writes Dianetics, mm. partly because we have the Jack Parsons and his wife and, and so forth. And Nibs was also there as well and mm. was able to observe and talk to his father. But I've always really wondered about those end days, you know, mm. that he really had reached his zenith. He had succeeded also but you know, past his wildest dreams. Mm. And he's rich. He has statues made of him. He has um, armies of acolytes that are serving him all across the world at that point. And, but I mean, just the idea that he was still auditing is kind of haunts me. I'm, I've always been just a little curious. Like, what do you think his mental state was in the end in terms of how he felt about what he had created and his belief? Well, I, th- I think his psychiatric condition has has to be, you know, his state of mind. Um, in your family, you have a, a certain amount of bipolar, yeah? Mm-hmm. That's right. And uh, he certainly exhibits that, that mm. he is publicly exuberant and um, he loves being on the stage and performing. And um, he's not bad at it. He's nowhere near as good at it as you are, man. <laughs> um, I tell you. But he's not bad at it. Um <laughs> But then you start, you see the interview with, say, Barbara Cloden, his girlfriend in 1950, um, which we did for the secret world of Oren Hubbard. And mm. she goes off to become a psychologist afterwards. And she's saying, oh, yeah, he'd, he'd sit in bed crying for days. You know, he'd he, he tell I'm worthless. I've achieved nothing. You know, I don't know what to do next. I've done Dianetics. I've got no idea what to do next. Then you find that, I say, Jim Dinkelsey, who also went off to become a psychologist, who, who looks after him in 72, 73, him and Paul Preston are with, with Hubbard in um, 
Queens in New York mm. uh, for a fair period of time. And again, he's talking about these fits of depression. When I interviewed John McMaster, who's close to him in the mid-60s, he's saying he has these terrible down moments. And when I first met Jerry Armstrong in 84, he said he thought that Hubbard was trying to cure himself. And then you read the list of things that Dianetics cures in modern science and mental health. Short-sightedness, not long-sightedness. Not, well, he was short-sighted. He wore glasses to the end of his, his life. Asthma, had asthma all his life. Bursitis, I'd never seen the word before, you know, these little lubricating sacs you have. Uh, he had a, a problem with the bursa in his right shoulder. Uh, terror stomach, the ulcers. And you realise that he's listing the things that he believes he's cured himself of. And, you know, knowing about the affirmations, he's using these hypnotic affirmations to try and rise above this. And as with any faith healing, it lasts for about three days. You know, the adrenaline comes in and, and you can walk miraculously for three days and then you fall over again. And he keeps doing it for a lifetime. He keeps finding the solution. The solution is, you know, now we've got the first real clear in 65. Then he gets the bronchial pneumonia yet again that winter, like every winter, 100 cigarettes a day. That's got nothing to do with it. It's to do with postulates. It's to do with, it's 100 cigarettes a day. You know, come on, man. You're going to get, the bronchi are going to inflame. So it was a hundred cigarettes a day. That's yeah. what he was at. Yeah, Kim I Douglas. I knew he was a heavy smoker, but sweet hell. <laughs> sweet. There's there's a point at La Quinta in '77 where he's got one messenger with a chair behind him, and one gets sent onto the rehabilitation project force because she doesn't get the chair under him when he goes to sit down. You've got one messenger with an ashtray, and you've got another messenger with the next cigarette. And when that one goes out, the next one goes in. And he, he complains to the messengers that he wishes he could give up smoking, the man who gave us the Narconon program, you know. Um, Kimma Douglas, when she testified in the Armstrong case in 84 as his personal nurse, and possibly the only person who actually chose to walk away from him, you know, all of the other people, including Jerry, were thrown out, you know, or pushed away. But Kimma one day just said, I can't watch you doing this to yourself anymore, and left. And she said under oath, I thought he had a better chance because he'd cut down from 100 to 80 cigarettes a day. So he's trying, that's the first part of it, there's a bipolar thing going on. On top of that, I'm sad to say, he's also a sociopath. He's, mm. he's utterly narcissistic and, you know, uh, Freud gets it wrong. He borrows the term, he borrows everything, Freud. He is such a fraud, such a con man. You, you know that Freud never had a single session of analysis? You know, that's how much <laughs> I think he... I've heard that before. That's how much he yeah. believed in it. And he, he just rifles and steals these things, like the notion of talking cure and Breuer's ideas, what, what have you. But he puts forward this idea of the narcissist, which, as I say, he steals from Havelock Ellis. It's, it's not new mm -hmm. to him. Uh, this is a person who only loves himself. And as Eric Fromm points out, that's not true. And the word is not the right word. Narcissist is absolutely the wrong word. This is a person who doesn't know how to love. So, uh, I mean, the great textbook is Heart of Man by Eric Fromm, where he first defines the malignant narcissist. And so you've got somebody who's going, love me, you know, the kind of Donald Trump syndrome. I've got to be adulated. Mm. So you mm. add that to manic depression. So you've now got a certain pleasure in humiliating and tormenting people when, um, 
1968, uh, Charlie Nairn interviews him for The Shrinking World of Aaron Hubbard, the, the most brilliant documentary ever made, I think, about anything. Mm. It's just 20 minutes of, oh, you know, I had no second wife. I had a first wife right. and a third right. wife, you know. It was uh, his last, last interview, right? Very last. It's his only the, inter- time- it's the only host- hostile interview of Ron Hubbard. The only. Wow. Um, the others wow. are all adulating. And Charlie was 25 years old and just fell into it. He said said to me that he, he arrived at the ship and, and he's told Granada. He said, look, they're not, he's not going to let me on. He's suing me for the documentary I made last year, uh, Faith for Sale. And um, he, he won't talk to me. And he says one o'clock and he's managed to find him. You know, no internet. He's in Bazerti, Tunisia, I think. And it's one o'clock in the morning and Charlie's there and he sees him walking along the deck. So he says, can I come aboard? And Elrond says, yeah, sure. He comes aboard and they sit and they talk for a couple of hours. And Charlie says to him, it's a terrible scam, isn't it? And Elrond goes, yeah, of course it is. Don't be stupid. Nobody would believe this nonsense. You know, come on, everybody in the right mind. He says, that must be awful for you having to live with that secret all the time, surrounded by people. And Elrond goes, yes, it's terrible. I have such a hard time. Charlie says to him, why do you do it? And he says, well, it's very nice telling your wife that you you took $10,000 again today. This is in 1968. This is like a lot of money, hundreds of thousands now, every day going into the bank. Well, you've got all these poor slaves around you who don't have toilet paper or proper food. But the real reason is I like to catch the clever ones and reel them in. And there you have the whole function of L. Ron Hubbard, that he's a 10-year-old boy who's pissed off that none of the girls like him, none of the boys will play with him, and he's going to get back at them. And he did. Mm. He did. Mm. So there's the narcissist. There's the bipolar. Mm. Um, on top of that, Yuval Law, when who you met at uh, Toronto, the immense mm. Yuval Law. He came to me and he sat down there and he said, did, did you ever think about Hubbard being a temporal lobe epileptic? And I said, what? And he said, here, <laughs> 18 characteristics, the Bairfordio traits. 17 of them I ticked immediately. The 18th took me half an hour to think of an example. And this is where you have a lesion in the temporal lobe. And the first symptom is hypographia. You can't stop writing. Well, Guinness Book of Records says he's the most prolific author of all time. So there's tick number one. You have religiosity, you know, this inflated sense of transcendent experience. You have the depression, so on and so forth. He ticks all the boxes. Um, And that's not temporal lobe epileptics can be perfectly nice people. The the first on record is, is Fyodor Dostoevsky, who I absolutely revere. Uh, just an astonishing, brilliant man who had a little bit of a problem with gambling. Um, <laughs> can happen. So, so <laughs> a little bit, you know, lost everything repeatedly. And it's good because it meant he kept having to write books to make more money to gamble <laughs> away. So it, it all works. You know, these these people like, you know, Harper Lee who write one book and you go, come on, kill another bloody mockingbird. You know, that's not enough. And then eventually she does write a second book. But so he had to keep working, and that's great. But it used to be called Dostoevsky syndrome. Um, uh-huh. So Yuval did a, a podcast with uh, Chris Shelton, 
actually just a week after I'd interviewed him and put it all down and we've never released this detailed account but it's in a sealed box and you can't look in it unless you're the lucky member of the audience and then I'll let you hear it but he, he, he gives this thing and he gets an email right from this guy who's a re an, an emeritus professor from Harvard a professor of neurology and he said I have a guilty secret for 30 years, I've been gathering material about Ron Hubbard because he fascinates me. I don't talk to people about this, but he fascinates me. And I'm a professor of neurology. And I was there when Baron Fadio gave the lecture in 1977 about temporal lobe epilepsy. And I had never put the two ideas together. And you are so right. <laughs> you know? Wow. So you've actually got a psychiatric condition. And he will keep going between the sense of... Um, you know, yes, I have achieved this incredible state where, you know, I, I can, I know everything. I've seen all of the knowledge of the world and I am the, the only person that can ever see the reality of the world because nobody else can devise technology, which was, that was a bit right. of a problem for me. We're never going to achieve his level. He's always going to be, you know, you can be completely self-determined as long as you do exactly what I tell you to do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's right. written right into it. Um, sealed right. your members. Bridge, your bridge to total freedom will, to freedom is going to cost you like 500 grand. That yep. does, it sounds like a, a, a rather hefty investment um, versus freedom. You know, I mean, if someone was like, I got a, a $500,000 loan you're going to take, but it's going to, it's going to give you all the freedom you've ever wanted in life. That's so it. Like, that doesn't sound, that doesn't, there's, those are the absolute opposite. I mean, I've, I've said it's like if you want to, if if you all are, if they are so convinced of its value to mankind and womankind, then make it free, make it free. You know, but, if, you, if you are mankind, the great mankind's greatest friend, and and you have something that will save us all, then then give it away for free. I mean, at least Christianity, they'll just hand you a Bible. You know, you can get a Bible. No problem. You walk into a church and you're like, I really want to read this Bible I'm hearing about. They'll give you 10 of them if you want with mm -hmm. nice, nice leather covers, if you like, Even, yeah. you know? Yeah. You go into Scientology. I mean, they're trying to resell the same books that you already own to a Scientologist. It's just absolutely staggering. Yeah. Just, I, just, I, just I another what, few thousand dollars, you know, I mean, it's, but, but the, well, the contradictions run all the way through that. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the C organization contract, I promise to follow and uphold command intention for the next 1,000 million years, and I will be then self-determined. Mm -hmm. Now, I became self-determined on the day I resigned from Scientology, and I've been <laughs> self-determined ever since, 37 years <laughs> later. You know, I think that, that your focus on the focus that you have rephrase it better and get my caffeine and my brain to work yes. is that that what i loved about the getting clear conference and being able to see you systematically deconstruct this this just skyscraper that we've all been staring at this this ominous castle with lightning mm -hmm. cracking behind it and over those days it's just a beautiful experience to watch it get taken apart brick by brick by brick and the thing that I've always wrestled with is, is inevitably, it all comes back down to the source, 
to mm-hmm. Source to mm-hmm. L. Ron Hubbard and that it's so easy to get lost in all of the shenanigans and the awful free that that they unleashed onto the world and mm-hmm. everything that they did wrong to everybody that's that's been involved since day one. Yes. Um, you know, I mean, meeting ex-Scientologists are like, you know, I can't believe that this happened and then this happened and this happened. Um, and I was in this course and then they, you know, et cetera, and on and on and on. And then meeting mm-hmm. people who've also are attempting to like rehabilitate Scientology, that there's good beliefs in Scientology. And to me, it's just been so naked at the very start mm-hmm. that this all came from the mind of one man and his fictitious biography is the entire cornerstone of you even buying in to even listening to this guy mm-hmm. whatsoever. If this was just some guy sitting at the bar, then he's like, hey, I got a book I wrote, and he just puts out something he printed at Kinko's, and he's like, it's going to save your life, it's going to save your mind, it's going to save the world. Mm-hmm. You're going to say no. But if someone is like, this guy over here at the end of the bar is a PhD Nuclear physics. physicist. Yeah, and he pulls out war a, hero. a leather with gurus book. in the East. Yeah. That's right. He, t- he takes off his sunglasses and he has eyes that have, have been blind, but now they can see through his own. You know what I mean? So it's, it's always been, it always unfortunately is the wrestling act that I have because to attack Scientology or to, to dismantle it, inevitably you are sucked into this narcissistic whirlpool because you can't talk about all the beliefs and the, and the insanity and the absurdity of it all without it coming back down to the same person who wanted everything to revolve and whirl around them in the first place. And mm-hmm. that's the tug of war I've wrestled with my entire life where I think it is, is a duty of my family to speak out against this awful abomination that we helped create. And, and I mean, by saying help create that did create, but then two generations fostered and put out into the world. There was a creator, and then there was the one of the first enforcers of NIBS. And mm-hmm. in some respects, my aunts and uncles view that Scientology was this monster that devoured them both, that yes. they lost their grandfather and their father to the same monster that they just yes. unleashed and thought they could control because they had fed this monster. They created it. They felt that they knew what it could do. But in the end, it ended up devouring them both. I mean, mm-hmm. in the end, Elrond was on the run. He died rich, but he was also on the run. His wife just went to jail. His, I mean, he was alone on a ranch, a broken, disjointed man who was, who was talking to the ghosts that he had created. I mean, who, who knows how far away he had become untethered to any sense of who he was, where he started, and yeah. what the sham was, or where the curtain was, mm-hmm. what was the magic trick, and who's the magician at that mm-hmm. point. So, I mean, it, it still devoured him also as well by the end. Otherwise, he should have just ran off to an island and retired and taken the money and run. But, I mm-hmm. mean, he was in his own labyrinth as well. But it's it's always been something I wrestle with is, is <laughs> I always feel like a, a fighter that, steps in and is kind of one foot in one foot out sometimes because there's a part of me that has this revulsion of getting sucked into his narcissistic whirlpool that still manifests itself day after day after day like even having to say his name even having to to point out to the endless journalists and podcasts and you've written books and you've given speeches and and it's it's 
it's like it's like when you read it's like it's like i don't want to read a biography of donald trump that shows all of his criminal you know shenanigans because i know that also there's part of him that loves the fact that i'm even reading a book about him even if it's exposing everything he's ever done wrong that i mean that run this really happened yeah, they, to me. This really happened to me. I, I was in it was 1986. I'm in Palo Alto, and mm-hmm. there is a class 12 auditor, uh, Paulette mm-hmm. Cohen, Paulette Mahurin. And mm-hmm. David Mayo is there, you know, famous David Mayo. And I interview him, and I get to him. I'm there in all for a month, and at no point will Paulette Mahurin talk to me. She will not acknowledge me at all. I'm back over there, I think it was 88. Maybe it was 90, but I'm back over there a few years later. And I'm in this huge party. And um, I'm a little bit the worse for wear. Uh, You know, I'm sitting down there. And this woman is sat opposite me and she says, you are giving him what he wants. And I don't know who it is. You are are making him famous. That's what he wanted. And I suddenly realise it's Paulette Cohen, Paulette Mahurin. And she's a class 12 auditor. She's been earning her living by passing this stuff on to people. But I'm to blame because I'm making him famous. Well, I want Hitler and Stalin and Mao to be famous. I want children in Turkey to be scared when their mum says, if you don't go to sleep, Alexander the Great will get you. Because I want people to know about these people. So I also want to say that, you know, Mengele's children have no responsibility for what he did. Mm. You know, there is no guilt that should, no blood guilt that should be riding with you. And you've you've done enough. I've done enough too. <laughs> you know, I walked away from this for seventeen years before right. coming back and, and doing the Toronto thing, and it was fine. And I'm I've walked away again. The only reason it's on this channel, this is you know, here's the truth, the uh, basic basic. Mm. I worked for five years to create help create the Open Minds Foundation. And I came down to this point where, you know what? If we could just teach 13-year-olds what human predators look like, the mm-hmm. methods of seduction, sales, and recruitment they use, and how mm-hmm. to tell facts from fiction, then these mm-hmm. problems wouldn't occur. And I wouldn't mm-hmm. have to spend 20 years trying to get somebody to recover from the horrible things that were done in their abusive marriage or the cult group or you know, the North Korea or whatever they were, the gang or whatever they're exposed to, because the kids would go, I know what you're up to, you know, right. you're one of these people. So <laughs> I set this channel up two years ago with my son, who's now almost 19, simply to talk about that, but nobody would come and watch. So mm. we started talking about Scientology <laughs> and now I find yeah. myself back in this business again. And it's fine because... It's endlessly fascinating, you know, the, that story. But I'm, I'm not a Scientology watcher. I don't mm. keep up with what David Miscavige had for breakfast. Any, right. I, I, you know, occasionally the National Enquirer will, you know, call me up and ask for a quote. And I'm re- that's great. What a high point of a career to be quoted <laughs> in the National Enquirer, you know. In- <laughs> that, yeah, that, that happens to me. I call it, I call it Tom Cruise season. It's yeah. anytime Tom Cruise does something, then, then all of a sudden journalists are re-reminded that there's this insane malignant predatory cult and they will call me up or email me because they want a sweet line. Mm-hmm. And I, especially over the years, have always tried to tailor it and circle it back and say, you know, it's not as important 
as to what Tom Cruise just said, as it is that he is the front piece for this malignant and predatory cult that continues to destroy families worldwide. And yeah. then in the in the article to be like, David O. Wolf says that Tom Cruise is is out for power, you know, or whatever. They'll distort yeah. the quote in some way so it's about about Tom Cruise. I remember I got I was on some twenty twenty or something and and my God, it must have been an hour that they were badgering me just to try to give some some quote about Katie Holmes and Tom Cruise. Oh, yeah. And I was just re relentless in going into all of these different things, all of these different like Operation mm. Snow White, all these things, trying mm. to just like, this is, this is so much more fascinating in a way and, mm. and compelling. Mm. You know, the, that most Americans don't even know that Operation Snow White was like the most successful, you know, counterintelligence like invasion in almost American history, like yep. almost to this day, still don't know that. And and the cult is still around and acting patriotic and, and this and that. And so I, I have an endless kind of fast, I have an endless fascination for the success of Scientology and its tactics and its mechanics. Hmm. But I feel your pain in terms of when you, <laughs> when you circle around and you try to even step past that horror show and you get into the elements of how do these monsters get created? How do these mm. things get unleashed? How do how do we invite the vampire inside? Mm. You know, the vampire shows up, they got their fangs glistening over their lips, but you still have to invite them inside. Mm. If they wanted to just beat you over the head and drag you with with violence, they could certainly do that. And they're, that's not what their their game plan is is about. And it's the same as when I do podcasts, and they are more than happy to do a line dance on the corpses of Scientology and laugh at the insanity and absurdity of it. Laugh at the insanity and absurdity of it. But when I get to a point where I start talking about my Christian upbringing and the parallels that I see and how religion has always been this destructive force mm. in my life, then they start to go to sleep. Then that becomes uncomfortable. Yep. Then they get into a point of like, hey, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You know what I mean? Like there's some lines you don't cross. We have to respect some beliefs. And I'm like, that's actually the disease there is mm -hmm. that you don't. Just because you believe it does not mean that we should respect it and that things should be sacred and untouched. That's mm -hmm. their first line of defense. It's the first line is like, hold on, hey, we don't want to step on people's beliefs. We should, you know, it's like, but I, I disagree. I don't, I think that we should step on Nazis' beliefs. Christians don't have a problem with, with stepping on and blocking mm. uh, satanic beliefs, even mm. though you're really just playing for the other side. You know, so I mean, having discussions that deconstruct belief and, and getting to the root of them and just seeing them often for what they are, which is just systems of control. And hmm. inevitably, I, I lose faith, <laughs> I guess is the right phrase, lose faith that humanity will ever turn around from it. You know, the older I've gotten, you know, when I, when I was first 21, coming out of Christianity, had left Christianity only years before and hmm. was coming face to face with this this other religion that my family had created and holding those two at the same time where you had something that was 
this ugly, very visible monster that was was just so transparent and 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 hideous to almost anybody that turns a light on it. But then pulling back further and then looking at how Christianity and, and its belief system has permeated so much of culture that we just don't even even think about it anymore um, was just a really kind of sanity shattering phase of my life, you know, yeah. until I got to some points so just for my own sanity, I just try to let a lot of it go and don't, don't let myself think about it. I think it's why when I get on the subject of religion and Scientology, it's just like this torrent flies out of me because mm -hmm. so much of it is pent up. I mean, I've, I've had to explain to people how often in life that I consistently really try to break myself from even binary thinking because I think that that so much of that is left over from growing up as a hardcore Christian mm. of this binary sense of of right wrong good oh, yeah. evil you know saint sinner and and so forth and just how alien of a concept that is to people mm. who grow up in a monotheistic culture and a patriarchal monotheistic culture of how that stuff subconsciously permeates you, even if you don't go to church, even if you haven't read a Bible in 20 yeah. years, that that uh, I'm a little jealous sometimes when I think of polytheistic cultures and, and what the Greeks had and that the gods had rivalries and arguments and, you know, I mean, it's just, it's it's refreshing in a way. And it, it's like, <laughs> seems so absurd to people when they think now on that, you know, it's like, well, Zeus and this and that. And I'm like, we're really believing in these, uh, like a, a remix of Zeus, of the Old Testament God as a sort of hand-me-down form of Zeus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like, it's really not that different. And I, I just, I've always been a little jealous because I think Greek mythology is pretty cool. And <laughs> it would be great to like, you know, I watched, I'd say this because I watched Clash of the Titans with my yes. partner who's never seen it. I was like, I had to show her my childhood version. And I was just thinking, I was like, my God, my gods, you know, on, on how just awesome and fantastical this is. And yet this is just portrayed as fantasy. And yet here we are and it's 2020 and we're in a pandemic where science should be triumphed. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the triumph of science. You have scientists working to save humanity literally from mm -hmm. microbes from an invisible menace and mm -hmm. still then in the end it's it's being in america it's like what are we doing we're having to watch people die because they're part of the donald trump belief system yeah. because he says it then they're going to believe it and then they're going to act on those beliefs it's it's like the mm -hmm. movie inception when they talk about what's what's one of the most dangerous things it's an idea you know, that beliefs and ideas are so much more powerful and destructive than almost anything else on earth. Because what you can do in the name of those ideas, what it will make you do in the name of those ideas, and how it will puppeteer your own actions while you think that you are moving in on your own is a people, testament to their power. People who believe absurdities will commit atrocities as a right. clever fellow once said and I, I, you see uh, yeah it, we're all on the same journey the good and evil stuff that that's just a hokum be, because it's only um th there's a, a story that um Milarepa the Tibetan 
uh, told about being with his master and one of the novices saying, I'm going to go down to the village and do some good work to get some mm -hmm. karma. And his master said, well, until you're enlightened, how do you know the consequences of what you do? Now, as somebody who doesn't believe in enlightenment, that's mm -hmm. a really strong story. I have no idea what the consequences of, of what I say will be. But I take William James' point, which is I will act as if what I did made a difference. And that, mm. I don't work, move in a world of good and evil. Those seem such childish concepts to me. What, what's good for, you know, the coronavirus is, is, is bad for me. Um, <laughs> and who's, who's the judge of, 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 of what there? So right. I, 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 if we're going to get philosophical, I'd go with Baruch Spinoza who's basically looking at ethics and saying, how should we behave towards other people? This got him into a lot of trouble. He was expelled from the Jewish community uh, and lived on the same street as Rembrandt, I'm told. And there's no record of whether, what an incredible meeting that would have been because Rembrandt, of course, had been expelled from his Christian community too. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I think I'm with Joe Campbell on this, that, that you know, mythology mm -hmm. is not history, it's psychology. Mm -hmm. The gods are all inside you, and mm -hmm. you know Freud cashed in on Greek mythology and how you know you've got an Oedipus complex, you've got an Electra complex, so this, that, or the other. That these are descriptions of behaviours, and that I think at the far end of this, we sort of say, well, I'm looking for purpose and meaning in my life. Well, mm -hmm. purpose and meaning. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm afraid those are things that that we make up, and. So make up the best one you can. For me, I, I rejoiced in the idea that you, know, you look at all those Christian missionaries who went and destroyed native cultures. We've lost those cultures, the Polynesian culture, some of the African cultures, because these people were so convinced they were right. And they, went, they spread syphilis around the world, wherever they, you know. It, whereas what I did was I stood up and said, this is what Ron Hubbard actually said. Mm -hmm. So it, right. I found myself in this faultless position. In terms of philosophy, I'm an agnostic. I don't pretend to understand any of it. And when I hear a street epistemologist telling me that they know what the truth is and that they're using, right. the, they're using the Socratic method, I go, well, when I read Socrates as a teenager, mm -hmm. what he pointed out was that the Delphic Oracle had said that he was the wisest man in the world and he didn't believe it. So right. for him, the Socratic method was saying... No, uh, I don't know what truth is. Whereas for them, right. the Socratic method is getting other people to believe what they believe. Well, that's just the reassurance that children need, that all cult members need, that their beliefs are true. There's no need for it. There's really no Winnie, need you, to, for that. Winnie, are you going to write? I, I really want to <laughs> read like John Atak's like history book. Every time I talk to you, I just I just want to take notes. And are you going to... What's next for you? Are you going to write that book? Well, I want to read. I, I think you should read this book, The Healing Secrets of the Ages by Catherine Ponder. And it tells you what colour you should wear to... No, sorry, I'm just going to put that... That's, I'm sorry, that, that was a little bit of a, a trick there. This is, the next, this is the next edition of the new book, which I'm proofreading now, Opening Our Minds. Um, our yes, little... awesome. That'll be out is, is in that, a, a couple couple of weeks. Is that going to a couple of weeks? Is that yeah. going to tackle? Is that going to tackle that's, history in the same way that you? That's awesome. get, uh, That's getting into the the whole manipulation 
scheme as it works in you know terrorist groups and everywhere and, and anywhere using often Scientology as an example because Scientology Yay. does it all does it all Yay um, I well, I'm I, I'm going to be the writer's dream and actually just admit openly I'm very excited for that book I'm oh, thank you. I'm I'm a target audience right now <laughs> so you have someone who is like super jazzed to read that I imagine I'll be marking it up with a highlighter and footnotes and whatnot I mean I mean your insight as someone who is it's always been stunning when I talk to you which has only been a few times sadly and I'd like it to be more but it's, yes it's, let's make it that, more because it's, it's such fun it's a it's just been stunning to me that with your razor sharp intellect that you managed to get hoodwinked at all as Scientology. I mean, I think that they they probably was one of their biggest disasters that they ever made was by allowing <laughs> someone as me. smart as you to get as far as they did. I mean, I said that to Chris Shelton one time, mm. is I said, you know, they're I'm like the most dangerous thing about you is that you actually read everything when you were in Scientology and you gave a fuck and you memorized it all. Like you were a true, a true devout student. And, and that's incredibly dangerous when they're on the other side. Cause they're like, Oh yeah, let me tell you exactly what that belief means. And that's on page this and this. And you know, when you're able to dismantle it by just using their words alone, that's incredibly effective and powerful and and i'm stoked to yeah, read that are you coming to the states anytime soon i, I don't know um because um as a teenager i smoked cannabis i actually have to go to the u.s <laughs> embassy now and plead to be allowed to get into the u.s where cannabis are is now serious? legal in 11 states and <laughs> i just think you people don't need me you don't want me <laughs> Um, the, the whole visa system changed under George W. Uh -huh. And I just uh -huh. got to the point where I'd done the 10-year visa and that was it. They'd be, I wouldn't uh -huh. have to apply again. But because when I was 17, you know, I was caught smoking a joint, you know, uh -huh. which is like, what, 50 years ago, I am a criminal. And um, so I might come wow. to Canada. I don't know, you know, again, but because there, of course, it is, it is legal. Though I'd probably right. still be a criminal, you know, I, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, Chris is that there, there are so many. Jerry's a very smart guy. Uh, oh no, Pete and Griff Jerry. I mean, Pete I mean, Griffiths. I think yeah. One, one of my one of my favorite moments was watching you and Jerry debate. That was probably one of my most memorable moments. I felt like I was watching, like I was just watching one of those like fantasy things that you dream about. Of you know, Malcolm <laughs> X hangs out with Muhammad Ali on yeah. the same night or whatnot. Just it was just. Just the two intellects of both of you kind of facing off in this mm. way. Just it was mostly on corrections, corrections mm. and interpretations of things. Mm. But I was just absolutely fascinated. Also, just because I think that the world owes both of you, among many, but but you both in particular, a lot just for what you all went through in order to expose the truth. I mean, the price that you both paid and mm. how close you came to having your lives ended because you were oh, simply yeah. trying to expose something that was was out in the open and the amount of discoveries and and what was known and and still known and continues to be learned about Elron and who he was as a human being mm -hmm. and how that manifests itself all the way to this empire he's still left that still grinds on day mm -hmm. after day 
I mean, I, I just have no idea what, I have no idea what we would, what would still be left in the dark if Jerry hadn't discovered those boxes in the secret attic, if you hadn't start turning that chisel of a mind towards the big mountain of Scientology and start pecking away with your questions, you know, as you left. And I mean, a lot of you, a lot of folks would have just walked away. They would have said like, I don't understand what this is, but it feels toxic. I'm walking and that's understandable. But both of you really stuck in there in the front lines. And I mean, the, the help that you have given to folks by your testimony, by your research, by your truth, and and just being unwavering about it is is incalculable. So, I mean, I thank you all for that. I mean, no. I, I felt that being at that conference, just knowing that no matter what I've been through or what my family's experience has been, and even L. Ron Hubbard Jr.'s, I mean... Yeah. It's it's always hard to put pain in any kind of a comparison and, and suffering in any kind of comparison. And but there's there's something that has to be said to the almost endless rage that it can trigger in people where you see something that is so so wrong and it's so obvious and it's barely hiding it. <laughs> you know, Scientology is not even not doing a good job at hiding it. I mean, no. you don't need to be in the CIA. There's no all of the secret dossiers and everything out is out. And if you poke and prod them enough, then they act in the same way that you've read in, in all of these hideous books. I mean, mm -hmm. in the fact that they are still tapping people's phones and killing their dogs and having PIs move into you next door and, and just that they get away with it endlessly. And it's it's so hard to live life knowing that that is, is being done over and over and really in this, in some respects, like in your name, you know, the same way that that's, that's how I think that some ex-Scientologists they have to wrestle with is like, this is something that they're a part of, that they gave energy to, that yeah. they gave life, you know, that they gave right. their money, they gave their time, they gave their energy to. Right. And at the same time, when you escape, you want to have your own life, reclaim your own mind back, your own space, your own, um, to remind yourself that there's something else larger in the world. But at the same time, you just watch this thing endlessly devour who's next. And yeah. it's real hard to watch that and witness it and not want to try to stop it. And I just hope that we both live long enough to watch its collapse. Yeah. You know? I agree, it, but it's a microcosm. You know, a, a few months mm -hmm. after I left, and, and I was really lucky. I was never in the CO, I was never on staff. I was never a living mm -hmm. member. I was never abused or humiliated. Mm -hmm. I, I rose to the great height of OT5, um, mm -hmm. which is about <laughs> that high. And um, I couldn't understand why nobody around me dared stand up to this thing. And mm -hmm. then I started finding out what had been happening. People had been on rice and beans diets. Why didn't they ever tell me? People had been mm -hmm. in the rehabilitation project force. Um, I have a friend who was six years old when her parents pretty much dumped her and her siblings. Mm -hmm. And they were part of a pack of 80 feral children who were looked after by one adult. When she was uh, 10, her eight-year-old brother drowned because there was not proper supervision. 
she talked mm. about watching um, detergent, washing up liquid being poured into his mouth, uh, washing his mouth out with soap by some ignoramus mm. who didn't understand the difference between soap and detergent. But mm. that they were hungry all the time, that, that these terrible things, you, you read about the, the ranch down in Mexico where the children were sent to live with the scorpions. Just these absolute horrors that, that are the continuum of Scientology. Well, it's a microcosm. Six months after I left, I kind of went, what's the most dangerous cult in the world? And I went, well, it's either the CIA or the KGB. <laughs> yeah, they are the really <laughs> dangerous cult groups. They've got these mad mm. belief systems mm. about, you know, that it's okay to go and murder people and violate mm. international law and do what the hell you want for the good of mm. your country. That That's corruption, right. that level of, you know, and uh, let's get into it. Let's say it, that I've recently had conversations with a dear friend about Barack Obama. And my friend mm. says, you know, he's the most wonderful man in the world, the most you know, ethical man in the world. And I go, he's a war criminal. He, he ordered drone strikes mm. where innocents were killed. In fact, even sometimes the wrong target and innocents mm. were killed. Um, he wouldn't publish the torture report about Guantanamo Bay. He refused mm -hmm. to publish it. So even though he was, he's fantastically charming and brilliant and all of that and brought in healthcare reform that was a necessity, he, his foreign policy was rubbish that Russia is in well, Syria now because yeah, he I mean, didn't do anything. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've been frustrated with that in terms hmm. of just being someone on the, the left and liberal leaning that when folks like Bernie Sanders, who I love and adore and, yeah, and think, think is fantastic... But something I, I pointed out that was a very unwelcome, unwelcome speculation when my friends who are really campaigning for him and so forth. And, and they're like, I think he can do it. And I was like, you know, if Bernie Sanders becomes president, like he's going to have to bomb somebody someday. Like mm. you don't get to be president without killing people like mm. it isn't there. <laughs> you know, you're going to kill them by not doing something or but I mean, you or you're going to have to just overtly kill him. I mean, I'll at least give Obama credit in terms of that. He seemed to personally be invested in wanting to know who he was killing yeah. and that they would have to explain the target to him. He'd read about it. He'd evaluate it. And mm -hmm. but I mean, you're going to kill innocent people in war once you start dropping bombs, killing folks. There is there is no clean war. There is no clean kill. It just mm -hmm doesn't happen there's always collateral damage there's always suffering there's always you don't get into politics without there being some blood on a couple of those rungs on your way up there as to and whether let's, or not let's yeah. look at that and let's say we have to change that that mm -hmm. has to be different if there is ever to be a human civilization we have to say there must be a way of doing this and there must be a way of saying nationalism is an evil that it's I a just, cult that believing in this thing, and it it's you know perhaps I'm I think, perhaps uh, maybe I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. You know, I've got this. I think this it's a divergence. I think I think that we have we have chimpanzees and we got bonobos, and our DNA yeah. is struggling as to which path it wants to pick, and whether you want to kill it or screw yeah, it. Yeah, that, that it's like, do we have a sort of benevolent community that gets along with with sort of solving things by sex and and by intimacy and communication and rock and roll. Yep. or is this about might makes right and and we are some sort of bastard remix of both of these kind of genetic strains and 
I don't know. I mean, in 2020, there's moments where last year, living in a, a country that is dominated by this new cult in the in this really almost white trash version of L. Ron Hubbard and the version of Donald Trump and watching him just propel us towards any kind of a ill ill thought out and ill planned mm -hmm. mediocre hell. Um, mm -hmm. I call it a tater tots cult. I call it just just the general resentment I have of of being in America where it's like your your cult is is not even that exciting. You know, it's about just like blonde breast implants, NASCAR races, and like, give me my freedom and no mask on in the face of a pandemic. And mm -hmm. it's just so stupid. You know, it's just yeah. so, it's so like mediocre <laughs> in, in a way is, I think it's unfortunate that as far as we've come, I've, I think the true danger is that we're going to, who's going to win? The people who want to make the self-perpetuating apocalypse and then there's the theology of it. There's the people who want Armageddon, the people who grew mm -hmm. up believing in Armageddon and apocalypse. Bring it on. Yeah. But then there's also just the people who are just going to be malignant and selfish. And it's, you know, climate change could be the one that wins simply because they don't want to change their business systems because it's going to cost too damn much. And, and they figure they got enough money, they'll be able to dodge enough bullets for long enough, you know, until mm -hmm. they get to the moon or whatever whatever needs to happen in order for the upper echelon to survive. And I really wonder sometimes, you know, if people think that, well, someday we're going to solve it. And I wonder like, you know, I don't know. Will we like, it's been going on for a while. I mean, we don't seem to like we, we are getting, they're just, it's like, who's going to win in the end, you know, okay. like the, the wolves or the sheep, you know, the, the sociopaths are successful in business for a reason. You know, there's a reason why L. Ron Hubbard got ahead. There's a reason why Donald Trump became president, you know, and we can sort of shake our fists and so forth, but sociopaths are going to look at us and be like, oh, that's cute. Are you going to talk about it? You're going to record a podcast? That's great. You're going to write a book? That's great. You know how little people read? Who's going to read your book, John? Who's going to listen to you, Jamie? You know what I mean? Like, who cares? And... That's the problem is is what we always come back to Scientology because of how we met. But I mean, that's what Elrond proved over and over. He's like, well, what are you going to do about it? He's like, yeah, well, you exposed me. What are you going to do about it? He's like, I'm going to sue the shit out of you. They're like, well, well they, it's fraudulent. What are you going to do about it, though? Scientology, <laughs> you know? Scientology now has about 25,000 members in the International <sighs> Association of Scientologists. That's all. It's a tiny little group. What so happens... Amazing. I think is firstly the good and evil. The next place mm -hmm. to go to that is the wolves and sheep, predators and prey, which of course is <laughs> Donald Trump's philosophy. That isn't mm -hmm. the reality of the world. That's what Norman Vincent Peale, who of course is the cult leader who instructed Trump as a child, mm -hmm. and Nixon, right. you know, when he was right. wanting to bomb Cambodia, he actually called up Norman Vincent Peale and said, what is the power of positive thinking in this instance? There aren't just predators and prey. Mm -hmm. There aren't. There are people who recognize predators and who will mm -hmm. not behave in a predatory fashion. And there are people among the plutocrats, and we shouldn't be in a damn plutocracy. That's what the founding mm -hmm. fathers created, and that's where we still are, mm -hmm. the rich rule. We shouldn't be there. But we can't have a democracy until such time there is enough people 
who can think about what they ought to do. That requires mm-hmm. education. Our educational system is screwed. It's not aimed at making life-affirming people who care right. about the people around them. When I was at school, it was like there was this choice that, that really confused me. You either believed in this guy who said, give everything you have to the poor if you want to follow mm-hmm. me, and he was the big right. man, or right. screw everybody over and get rich. And it just right. confused me. I was 13 years old. It's, it's and I decided thinking. I mean... I guess I, I even I was even making binary the same thinking. mistake, um, and and couldn't have been more obvious in terms of just saying of the predator than prey and the wolf and the sheeple and et cetera. Mm. I mean that that's that's also me falling into the same trap. I mean I think that mm. the problem is is that the people who are are the people who are predators are the ones who are going to constantly remind you of the predators and prey, and they're going to constantly drag you into a fight and get you yeah. in a war mentality, and mm. that's. That's the problem. I mean, I've seen it even with the Donald Trump administration shifting to Joe Biden, where it's a mm-hmm. completely different flip, where Donald Trump is all about binary thinking, us, them, not even mm-hmm. trying to bring people together and making no illusions about it, and was taught, as you were saying, as a very young age, be a shark, be a killer, right? Yeah. And that's how he views the world. And then you have someone like Biden, who has a very different vibe and is about mm-hmm. trying to bring people together as to whether that's false and whatnot, who cares is for a political podcast. But I mean, just in terms of the vibe of the country is so much different, yeah. you know, immediately where there's a sense of like, all right, let's try, let's try, let's get out of this, shall we? And then we can go mm-hmm. back to being a bunch of assholes, but can we get out of this plague first? You know, I mean, is something we're hoping on. Um, but- my God, I could talk to you forever. I'm supposed to do a, a work meeting for a class I'm teaching shortly okay um, we can so let, we'll finish up and we'll yeah. talk again in a few weeks time yeah sure yeah i would love to i'd love to come out there with the uh, cameras and just just pick your brain um for a bit now that i got the vaccine and stuff i can fly mm-hmm. someday and i've been toying it with with it in my head for a while of coming out there and just like being able to interview you at your leisure um Let's in some it. easy way but now that you have your book, it might be fun to film something with you for that could help you with your book, whether it's mm-hmm. you just talking about your book in the process. So you have one of those like snazzy little author interviews because um, I'm, I'm a filmmaker. That's my job. Yeah, so that's absolutely. what I do during the day. And that yeah, would be I mean, a great reason to go out. A good England, excuse. So. And I've had I've had my first jab as well. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do that. I'm much more. In 2008, I. I was contacted by Roger Nygaard, who made mm-hmm. Trekkies, Trekkies 2, mm-hmm. yep. made the movie Suckers. He's currently yep. editing Curb Your Enthusiasm, and he's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And he, he contacted me. He said, I want to interview for this documentary. I said, I don't talk about Ron Hubbard anymore. He said, no, uh-huh. no, no. I, I read your book, and I just want to talk to you. And he went all around the world on his own dime, and he'd interviewed 200 people that included, like, Richard Dawkins and um, uh-huh. rabbis in Jerusalem and... Um, priests in the Vatican, he'd been to India, to Taiwan, he'd talked with neuroscientists, with, and the, the documentary he made is called Nature of Existence, and it, it's a great documentary. It's called and Nature of Existence? Nature of Existence. Okay. Very well worth watching. He's just done um, another called The Truth About Marriage, and you can, we've got a <laughs> that little... Sounds, that sounds just, scary. He, oh, but he's, 
it, that's only you know he he works for a living and does these things you know he directed <laughs> various things but he goes around making documentaries and he's very very sharp i've done mm -hmm. we we did one interview which we've cut into two and put on the channel mm -hmm. but what was fascinating was he got this list, this huge list of questions, and I stood there in Regent's Park on a pleasantly warm day, leaning against a tree. And he and with another cameraman, they they did this this list of you know a hundred and something damn questions, which is what they asked right. everybody, and you you didn't get them ahead of time. And it really did interest me. Eventually, it took me a couple of years to to get the footage out of him. Because mm -hmm. I wondered, because of course only two minutes of what I said went into the documentary. Right. And it right. was really fascinating to get into that situation of, yeah, just a free-for-all where somebody says, you know what, because I didn't know what was going on in my head until he right. asked me in some instances. So one of the questions he asked me was, uh, do we have free will? And I said, <laughs> uh, no, but I think we can get it. And, I, and I'm going to... And he said afterwards, he said he'd asked nearly 200 people these questions and that everybody else he'd talked to within five minutes, he knew what the answers would be to all the other questions, but with me. So let's, uh, you you start writing some questions and come over in a few months and we'll, sure. we'll do that. But let's talk again I'm also soon. Just, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful that for all that you've been through, that you still have a flicker of hope for humanity oh, I'm is incredible. Hopeful. Yeah, that gives me a bit of vicarious hope because I'm telling you, in Donald Trump America during a pandemic, it was pretty hard to find. Where I was like, <laughs> I think I'm, I think this story has only a couple of different endings here. Mm -hmm. It's uh, only degrees of losing, and but I'm I'm glad that there that through all you've seen and all you've read that there's still some vestige of hope that yeah. that we may may get a true enlightenment that we don't need well, to be handed an answer from someone we just have to shift all. shift the balance a little bit in terms of what people know and we'll save the world don't worry about it <laughs> <laughs> great talking with jamie uh, talk it's always an honor uh thank you very much and we'll and, talk soon okay yeah and if you check the sound over to me then, uh yeah uh, we'll do great Thank okay. You. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps, and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. Or you can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much. It's in a sealed box and you can't look in it.